I have chosen the book of Habakkuk for the exhortation today because it addresses some fundamental aspects of our religious life and lays a firm basis for the future. Although our reading today is Habakkuk chapter 2, the book contains only three chapters and we will make use of all of them. Habakkuk is not mentioned by name anywhere else in the Bible. But there are references to his writings in the New Testament. His name was thought to mean embrace or cling. But to quote the New King James Version, its form appears to be non-Hebraic and is currently thought that his name derives from the Akkadian, the oldest Semitic language that was used in Mesopotamia, and is thought to mean a species of fragrant garden plant or tree. It's difficult to be absolutely precise about the time Habakkuk ministered. He speaks of God raising up the Babylonians in verse 6. We can guess that he wrote sometime in the 25-year period between the time when Babylon conquered Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire in 612 BC and the time when Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 587 BC. I've seen several references to the fact that Habakkuk's ministry appears to be the reverse of the traditional role of a prophet in that he deals with God for the people instead of dealing with the people for God. Certainly he fulfills the divine role of a prophet as outlined by Jeremiah, for he stands in the counsel of the Lord to perceive and hear his word and thereafter to transmit it faithfully. The book of Habakkuk is really in two parts. Chapters 1 and 2 form the first part and chapter 3 the third part. The last chapter is clearly very different from the first two. In chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk is wrestling with God. He is miserable. He is shouting. He is impatient. He asks for justice. He says God is inactive. In chapter 3, he is resting in God. He is happy. He is singing. He is patient, he asks for mercy, and realizes that God has and will be active. Why this incredible change in Habakkuk? We will need to explore the prophecy to find out why and to see what lessons there are there for us. The first chapter begins with a familiar subject. The prophet asks God, How long, O Lord? Must I call for help? But you do not listen. This is a cry that can be found in the Lament Psalms, of which Psalm 13 has these well-known words. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I can think of no greater terror than being abandoned by Almighty God. And clearly, the psalmist feels similarly. Habakkuk continues, Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? 
for destruction of violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. For the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk asks God why he seems to delay judgment. He sees evil everywhere, especially remembering the prior times of revival under King Josiah. But his son Jehoiakim based his reign on injustice so that God's law ceased to be honoured and asks, Lord, why are you allowing this? Iniquity, trouble, destruction, violence, strife, contention. The law is powerless. Justice never prevails. Perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk sees trouble and sin all round him. He knew that God must execute punishment and ordain judgment on sin. So he complained to God that he was doing nothing about the violence and the corruption in his holy city. He wanted God to reverse the situation and restore law and order. God responds to Habakkuk's question, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. God responded that he would punish the sins of Judah through an invasion by the Babylonians. Be utterly astonished. God tells the troubled prophet, don't worry about it. Look at the surrounding nations, and from them will come a nation that will be my judgment on sinful Judah. I will work a work in your days which you would not believe. We understand the idea of something too good to believe, too good to be true. But this isn't what God is talking about here. This is something too bad to be true. A work of judgment so astounding that Habakkuk would have a hard time believing it. God is telling him that he's not idle. Standing by, as Habakkuk implied, and was not doing anything to redress the situation. He is about to work a work which he would not believe. I am raising up the Babylonians. When the Babylonians eventually came against Judah, they came as sent by God. It wasn't that they themselves did not want to come, but God allowed their sinful desire to conquer Judah to come to fruition. If God had not allowed them to do it, they could never have conquered Judah and, exhort, and exiled God's people out of the promised land. Is there a parallel here with God using the children of Israel to punish the tribes that were living in Canaan before Joshua led them over the Jordan? Was not the sin of the Canaanites so terrible that God waited 400 years for them to mend their ways, but their sin became so great the land was taken from them by the Israelites? 
We read in Genesis, God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep during which he told Abraham, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. From the work of archaeologists, we now know just how evil some of the Canaanite religious practices were. Their worship was polytheistic and included child sacrifice, idolatry, religious prostitution and divination. God was patient even with the wicked Canaanites. Here is another lesson for us. If we think that God is taking a long time in sending Jesus back to us, we must also learn to be patient. Now God is revealing through Habakkuk the punishment ordained for Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. God further states that they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also swifter than leopards and fiercer than evening wolves. If God describes them thus, then the impending disaster would be truly terrible. But it can be seen that there is little righteous punishment in the Babylonian invasion, for their dignity proceeds from themselves and was human rather than divine. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offence, ascribing this power to his God. The description is written in the present tense to make it sound more sinister. Then his mind changes and he transgresses, he commits offence. They attributed their strength to their god Marduk, as we shall see later. So any comparison between the children of Israel displacing the people of Canaan and of the Babylonians displacing the children of Israel stops here. Habakkuk then raises another question based on God's answer to his verse. Why do it this way, O Lord? We can begin to see how Habakkuk's name describes his character. He is clinging to God and dares to argue with God, demanding answers. Habakkuk reasoned that since God is holy, he must be using Babylon as an implement of his judgment on Judah. But he was complaining that rewarding the more wicked in order to punish the less wicked seemed inconsistent with God's goodness. We begin to see something of Job in this conversation with the Almighty. This is a paradox for Habakkuk, who knew God's character. And he says in verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk is wrong here. God does look on evil in the world. It's a classic statement of the problem of evil within the context of Israel's faith. Why does evil appear to flourish unchecked by a just and holy God? Habakkuk compares the Babylonians with fishermen that catch all with the hook and the net. 
And so successful are they that they begin to worship the net. Babylon worshipped its own military strength. Habakkuk resolutely waits for God's reply. And this we see in chapter 2. And he begins with, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give this complaint. Habakkuk has raised two important questions to God, yet he asks both with a great attitude. He anticipates an answer from God and is willing to watch, that is, wait. In reply, the Lord tells Habakkuk that he is achieving nothing by sitting in his watchtower. He ought to get down into the street and write what God has told him on the wall in large letters, what one writer has called the first advertising hoarding in the Bible. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. Write the vision and make it plain. God told Habakkuk to record this question and answer time for the benefit of others, that he may run who reads it. Habakkuk's revelation wasn't just for him. It was also to edify others. Those who read it would make rapid progress, may run. But they couldn't make this progress if Habakkuk did not make it plain. Write the vision. This command ensures exactness in its transmission and make it plain on tablets guarantees its publicity. There is the sense that the tablet in question may be a metal tablet that will be attached to a wall for public reading. That he may run who reads it means that it must be easily read. Another reason for stressing that the vision be recorded is to stress the unchangeable nature of it. Any delay in the outworking of it may be construed as if it had been annulled and is no longer valid. Habakkuk first has to see the vision, for he cannot make anyone else see what he does not see himself. The vital truth now stated consists of two immutable maxims. Sin does not go unpunished, and righteousness is always rewarded. In verse 3 of chapter 2, For the revelation waits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Habakkuk spoke to an age beyond his own. The Babylonian conquest would not be evident in his day, but in the future. And this is a lesson for us all. God's prophecies come to pass. They may appear delayed, but they will occur. The Lord tells Habakkuk and Judah that fulfillment of the prophecy may linger, but he and the people are to expect it. 
See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. He, in this case, are collectively the Babylonians and their king. And the following verse is the pedestal of scripture upon which so much is based. But the righteous will live by his faith. If we look at the verse in context, Habakkuk is saying that the Babylonians will kill the righteous as well as the wicked. God is saying that he will protect the righteous, that they will survive if they remain faithful to him. When the Babylonians come, many will lose faith in God. But God says that those who go on believing in him will survive the coming judgment. Every word in this verse is important and it is cited three times in the New Testament, which brings out the fullness of the meaning. Firstly, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 17, Paul quotes this passage from Habakkuk with the emphasis on the righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. And reading from the previous verse from the NIV, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The important part here is from start to finish. That is, to go on believing. It next appears in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. And Paul quotes this passage with the emphasis on just. The just shall live by faith. And again, reading from the previous verse, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. And finally it occurs in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. There the emphasis is on live the just shall live by faith. He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. Habakkuk has made this verse the cornerstone of the gospel. Indeed, it could and has been said that the revelation made to Habakkuk is the gospel in embryo. Continuing in verse 5 of the second chapter of Habakkuk, we have, returning to the description of the Babylonians, indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. That the grave is never satisfied can be found in the book of Proverbs. But there is a cross-reference here to the book of Isaiah. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. 
God in poetic language uses a series of woes to pronounce against Babylon. Woe in scripture is used as a curse. When Jesus said woe, and he said it many times, awful things happened. In Jesus' time, there were a quarter of a million people living in four towns on the shores of Galilee. And in Luke, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And to Capernaum also. Only Tiberias is there today. The others are gone. The first woe appears in verses 6 to 8. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. The first woe refers to the greed of the Babylonians. They were getting rich at the expense of others by conquest of their homes, making vassals of the nations, extorting from them huge contributions of materials, money and men, and bleeding them dry. Throughout the history of the world, conquering nations often imposed unjust terms financially on those they oppress. The second woe, verse 9 to 11, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high. God is telling them that they have carried many people away with them. But he says that the very stone of your habitation, your house, will cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. God said that the masonry and the timber within your house will testify to what you are doing to those around you. The third woe in verses 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who established a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and the nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. This woe is pronounced on those who promote violence. This woe focuses on the city, which had been built by bloodshed of others. God addresses the violence of the Babylonians. We can see the progression from individual and corporate greed to that of bloodshed. Their desire to have things and satisfy their appetites was so important to them that they resorted to violence and killed to gain properties and finances. They used the riches of plundered cities to build Babylon. As a correction and a rebuke, the Lord reminds the violent man of the Lord's ultimate triumph. The fourth woe. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to the bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. The fifth chapter of Daniel tells of the downfall of that same Babylonian empire. Belshazzar was in his drunken orgy when he cursed God and mocked God in blasphemy and sacrilege. And then the hand writing appeared on the wall which says, Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. Through the prophet Habakkuk, the Lord rebukes both the drunk 
and those who promote drunkenness. Though they think that alcohol makes them feel good, God rightly says they are filled with shame instead of glory. And the fifth and final woe. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The foolishness of idolatry is shown for what it is. Their idols are overladen with gold and precious things. And to the outward appearance, they are very appealing. And they are so beautiful that they fall down and worship them. But there is no breath in them. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Through it all, the point is proven. Habakkuk couldn't understand why God would judge a sinful nation, Judah, by an even more sinful nation, Babylon. Yet God reminds Habakkuk of his own wisdom and strength and of his own ultimate triumph over the wicked. God knew that Babylon was filled with the proud, the greedy, the violent, the drunk, and the idolater. And the Lord knew how to deal with them all, and has explained this to Habakkuk by way of answer to his questions, and concludes with, Now you know. Now let there be silence. The third and last chapter of Habakkuk is in a very different format. It is referred to as Habakkuk's prayer, but as with many psalms, it is set against the backdrop of recollection. We now see a different Habakkuk, one at peace with and trusting in God. In the silence that God demanded, Habakkuk reflected on what God had said, and he realized that God had a much broader view of things and a longer-term view. And that is also a lesson for us, that we cannot see the extent of God's vision, and therefore we often criticize what we do not fully understand. The conversation of Habakkuk with the Almighty should remind us of the omnipotence of Almighty God, and that we ought to have a continuing faith that what he is doing is right, even though we cannot see it. In verse 2 of chapter 3, Habakkuk acknowledges God's fame. He records a poetic celebration of God's saving acts of old and stands in awe of his deeds. He asks for a renewal that the people know him again. There is a lesson here for us. The prayer of Habakkuk shows us that revival is a, word, a work of God, not the achievement of man. However, there is something that we can and we must do for revival. We must, in our prayers, plead for God's reviving work. At the same time, this must be a personal prayer. Lord, revive me. We too often blame others for sin, corruption, laziness, or whatever, and we forget that we need revival. In our prayer for personal revival, we must diligently search ourselves.
verse 16 to 19. When I heard my body, when I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. Habakkuk shows the proper response of man under the sovereign power of God. He recognizes his own weakness and low standing before this God of all majesty and power. The prophet remembers that the Babylonians are coming and that this God of sovereign power and majesty is directing their work against Judah. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, in almost a vision, Habakkuk sees the Judean countryside desolate, perhaps from the invading Babylonian army or perhaps from the natural calamity. In the midst of this almost complete loss, Habakkuk can still rejoice in the Lord. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stores, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. With desolate circumstances like he has just described, Habakkuk can find no joy in the fig tree or in the vines or in the fields or the flock but he can still rejoice in the Lord because he is unchanging. Habakkuk didn't just practice positive thinking and shut out the idea of a barren fig tree and the empty cattle stores. Instead, he saw these problems for what they were and remembered that God was greater than them all. He has learned the lesson of faith to trust in God's providence regardless of circumstances. He declares that even if God should send suffering and loss, he would still rejoice in his Saviour God, surely one of the strongest affirmations of faith in the whole of Scripture. As we come to the emblems on the table, we see before us the bread and the wine as symbols of our absent Lord that we have come here to remember. In our reflection of our Lord, we recall that the Apostle Paul quoted Habakkuk in his sermon at Pisidian Antioch, and this can be found in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13. This is a significant chapter. It deals with the beginnings of Paul's first missionary journey. It it gives us Luke's description of Paul's first sermon to the Jewish synagogue. It also serves as the transition point of Paul's moving to the Gentiles as the Jewish community in Pisidian rejected the message of Jesus. Paul speaks of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is through this one who has been raised from the dead that forgiveness of sins is offered. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. It is at this point in the conclusion that Paul urges a response by the use of Habakkuk 
verse 5 in the first chapter. Therefore take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come to you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Paul applies it to the amazing salvation offered in the gospel, as well as to the staggering judgment which awaits those who refuse it. But for those who heed this message, the threat of judgment is no more. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him.